we are in the second half of First Kings, and uh, doing this this subject on these sets of kings here at the end of First Kings, uh, dealing with uh, seven or eight, depends on how you count, uh, different kings from the from the north, and they're all bad. And so my news today is really bad. So it's a great topic. I've got bad news, and it wait, it gets worse. And so. Uh, it's nothing like I like to come home. I remember as a kid coming home and saying, Mom, how are you doing? And are you in a good mood? Because I got some bad news. And then you kind of test the waters and they're okay with the bad news. And then you say, but then there's more. Um, unfortunately, uh, I had more than one of those days in my life. Um, and so we get another one today. Um, but in the midst of this, uh, hopefully we point and are reminded of an incredible God that we serve. I have often heard people talk about, and I don't know if I've heard it taught, but I definitely hear it now in our culture that uh, the Old Testament is this God who's just angry, and he is full of discipline, and he wants to spite, oh, great, mighty spider. He's that guy, you know. Uh, And yet, then we have God of the New Testament. He's this loving God. Um, And I think that is difficult teaching. Actually, it's false, because it is the same God. We worship the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God that created Adam, created him in his own image, gave him Eve, created, and, and, and we've seen even up to this point as we've looked at the kings, this is the God uh, that David chose to follow with all his heart, and Solomon chose to wander away from him by following wives from other uh, religions. It is the same God that we're gonna see of all the kings that have an opportunity to do something when God speaks. And it's the same God that we have today. And he, he doesn't change, right? He, he doesn't fluctuate with culture and with time. He doesn't ebb and flow with the seasons and the political prowess of the day. He is who he is all the time. And so even though it may be hard for some of us to see how can this God be this God, it's so judgmental. Uh, I want to remind us, and we'll come back to this, that maybe we live in a culture that is shaped a little bit about how we view judgment. Matter of fact, let me start with this. First Kings 14, it's in your notes there. I'll read that, and then we're gonna have you just kind of follow along with me at the end of First Kings. It says, and the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah, that's spelled wrong, Asherah poles, or Asherah poles, which would be the, the plural of that. And so um, in, in the whole essence of this, this is a prophecy that is about to take place, and we're gonna see later as we follow this trail of the kings. But it, it's a great picture of how he describes the kings and the kingdom of Israel. It's like a reed swain. It's easy to pluck. And, and find another one and pluck. And this is kind of the picture of what we get as we look through all of these kings here in these last few chapters. Um, and so when we look at this text, we see a God of infinite, uncanny, unnerving patience. You know, and I think that's a twist. Not an angry God, but a, but a God who has this uncanny patience, like out of this world kind of patience with his people. And as we read the text, I I want us to see the patience of God in this process. You know, matter of fact, we tend to be, as God's people, a lot of times, is is that we see God, like, you should be, like, dealing with this right away. 
Have you ever been to Walmart or, or maybe the church lobby and you've seen uh, kids running hither and far and you're like, eh, somebody ought to teach that kid a lesson. And you don't say that out loud. Maybe the older you get, you say that out loud. I think you say it. I think it's just part of getting older. You just get to say those things out loud. But I mean, you might watch that and you're kind of going, oh, you know, somebody ought to grab that. And actually, I'm one of the people who said, let them run. Let's have a race. And so, uh, but anyway, I, I see that kind of thing. And, and I think a lot of times we look at God and go, I don't see God as an angry God. I thought God actually should actually do more judgment. You know, a matter of fact, I think he might be irresponsible in a little bit here in the sense toward his people. And by the time, we're not going to get there today, but by the time we get here in a few weeks to Babylon, uh, the Babylonian exile, where Judah finally is the last of the crew from Israel moving into exile, I think a lot of times we think, well, it's about time. I mean, after we've read everything we're going to read, right, we're going to say, it's about time. You know, what took you so long, God? You know, I think of Jonah the story of Jonah, you know, going to Nineveh and he didn't want to go and we know that whole thing. He gets there, he preaches and what happens? These people he doesn't like, they repent, right? And so God gives them, delays their judgment, if you will. And it's almost like in Jonah we see this, he takes offense at God's mercy. And uh, I can relate to that. You know, I take offense. I want God to do the work and do it and take care of those people. And, and you know, boom, boom, this is what I want God to do. I want to, I want to be black and white and everything is clear. And, and yet sometimes the text doesn't give me that. It shows this God that has judgment, that makes a covenant, covenant that follows his covenant completely, but a lot of times is patient even when I don't get that kind of patience as a father. And so this is what we're going to see today as we look through this, in this idea that bad kings suffer deadly consequences, right? But God still speaks for his people. I, I wrote a list there, the high priest, from high priest to kings to prophets. It's like from the beginning, it was the high priest who went in to the Holy of Holies, heard from God, and spoke to the people. And because of a broken situation there, and they asked for a king, he says, okay, I'll speak through a king's. And and get past Saul a little bit, but through David especially, he is anointed by the prophets, and then the king speaks with God, right? So we had that kind of picture of what's taking place, and now we're in the middle of kings who are not following what God has called, and so God's word is still proclaimed, and now it's being proclaimed to the prophets. In the center of this text, there are two incredible prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and I think next week, Ryan, you're talking about that a little bit, and so I'm going to try to stay away from that. There is a lot of intertwining with Elijah and a guy named Ahab, which we'll have a lot to talk about here. But in the essence of that, we're, we're going to spend next week talking a little bit more about that. But this is the one of the things we saw. I mean, this, this incredible move from high priest to kings to prophets, because you know what? God is always going to speak. And he's going to use and speak in the way that his people can hear. And this is one of the pictures of the patience of God is that God chooses to speak to us. He never, in his judgment, stops speaking when there's repentance and when there's a, a person who needs to be heard. And even when they're not hearing, he still speaks. And so I think it's important for us to see that. Uh, the treatment of the prophets and the king's response to the prophetic word determine the rise and the fall of the dynasties and the kingdoms that we see here. In this last half, 
section. We're not going to look at every one of them, but in chapters 14 through 22, which is the last half of 1 Kings, which we're going to try to get through, we see several occasions of the prophets speaking for God, being God's word, and it being fulfilled in a matter of generations of these kings that we see come past Jeroboam. I think this is interesting. When we look at the first half and the second half, I thought this, I'll come to this here in a minute, but the first half is primarily Solomon and Rehoboam, his son. I'm going to butcher that, I think. Okay, so the first half, 60 years, okay? One, two kings from the, from the uh, south, Judah. And then the last roughly 60 years here, this is like one through probably 14, 13-ish. Do that, that's still 13 and a half, how's that? And then 14 through 22 is here, 60 years, and we're gonna see seven to eight kings that we're gonna talk about in Israel. Okay, so a lot of time spent on Solomon. Not a lot of time spent on these guys. Matter of fact, from about 16, so 14 and 15, we cover six to seven of them. Okay, so we're going to jump really fast through this, through a lot of names and going, okay, there's names, there's a reason their names are there. I, I love how it says, and if you want to know more about them, you can go to the annals. And I love that. You can go to history books and find out about these guys, but this is what I have to say about them. This is what God says. This is plenty. I mentioned going to funerals. I love going to funerals. Actually, it's, it's a time of worship. Um, and, and it's just a time to remember who God is in the midst of pain of, of loss. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an incredible picture. But I have to admit that sometimes when I've gone to funerals, as the person responsible to get up and to, to give a eulogy, and you don't know the person or you're not really sure and you're, and you're trying to say what did they have to stay, put before God, I think sometimes it's very similar to what we have here. There's really not a lot I can say. Right? I mean, sometimes it's like he, he loved his family, okay? And what else? Can, okay, let's pray, you know? But we can say it in a lot of different ways, right? And that's kind of a scary thing. Uh, we talked about that on the way home today from a funeral. Not that that was one of those funerals. Please don't hear that. I don't want to get that going on. But I'm just saying, you know what I'm talking about in that kind of essence. Here's another interesting thing, just some tidbits. 21 times in the first half, 21 times we see the word wisdom. Zero. Here. I thought that was interesting. Of course, right? We got Solomon, of course. He asked for wisdom. Yeah, duh. But it's really interesting there were zero here. And before you think that I'm saying that wisdom is a key to being a king that follows after God, um, maybe. But that's not the essential. I think probably the best way to say it, the demonstration that wisdom is essential, yet ultimately it's ineffectual to secure the health and salvation of Israel at this time. You can have all the wisdom you, you can have in the world, but that by itself is not what saves. And even though it's, just, it's not here, uh, wisdom doesn't show up when people aren't following. Wisdom shows up when people are following. But wisdom by itself, gaining wisdom only, does not bring an effectual uh, uh, security to health and salvation for a, for a country or for a people. Um, the wisdom, the Torah, 
the temple, all of these things as we've watched being built and, and being dedicated, those in themselves will not save. Uh, they will not save Israel from within Israel. And so we see this, this picture here of, of what is happening from one half of this to the second half. Let's, let's walk through. Here's the bad news. Okay, this is like a really bad movie and they made four sequels of it. Okay, and, and this is how it goes. King rises, king reigns, sins, dies. Part two coming next Christmas. King reigns, king rises, it rains, it sins, it dies. We're gonna see this repeated over and over. And you just think, okay, it can't get any worse than that? Yes, worse, worse, worse. Uh, it will become impossible to distinguish even during this time, even though we're focusing on Israel, uh, we won't have a lot of time to see how Judah starts to, uh, to uh, marry itself up to. There are several kings that they think it's a great idea that the kings of Israel, who are not following God, will marry by sending their daughter and marrying the husband of the guy who's going to be the king of Judah. And we see all kinds of problems that happen with this. And so both in this situation fall into idolatry, both displease God, both threatened with exile. So here we go. If you have your Bibles, turn to 15, chapter 15 of 1 Kings. We're going to read some verses and knock through some of these. The first guy is Nadab, okay? And I just think it's, there's not a lot of verses, and so we're going to read them, okay? And so I kind of want to read to give us here. This is the son of Jeroboam, okay? Jeroboam, uh, at the prophecy at the end end of his life, the sins of Jeroboam. We talked about those in the previous weeks. You're going to hear that repeated over and over again. He reigned Two years, in verse 25, it tells us that he reigned for two years. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel for the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father, and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. You're going to hear that line over and over. So he is just like his dad, didn't fall too far from the tree, and here he goes, part two, We add Nadab to Jeroboam, and he is like his father, and then he tells us what happens. Baasha, son of Ahijah, from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him, and he struck him down at Gibbethon. And I want to write that down because I want to mention that here in a little bit. Gibbethon. I did a little search, okay? So if this is the sea, and this is Jerusalem, so you have the Jordan River, Okay, Dead Sea's down here, Sea of Galilee's up here. Jerusalem is right here. This is considered Judah, so I'm I'm just gonna do something like that. Up here is considered Israel, the north, so you got the north and the south. Joppa, kind of a popular town here. These are two important places. Here is the influx of the Philistines, okay? When God gave the people of Israel the promised land, he gave them all this land, okay? God conquered the Canaanites who were worshiping other gods, and God gave them this whole land. But what we're seeing, because they're not following God, one of the things that dissolves is the land that was given begins to be taken away. And the Philistines are starting to take and fortify along this border. Gibbethon is right in that area, okay? So they're watching this border <coughs> here with, it's probably more on this line here. There's also other borders here because they're fighting all of the time. There's 25 years of fighting. It tells us in the text in Gibbethon 
over this section that we'll see several times the army at this place either just standing guard and watching or getting ready to attack, protecting this, making sure there's a presence so that the Philistines don't try to take more land. And so that's kind of an important place there. And Baasha comes from Issachar, okay? So he comes from the north. He's, he's, he's from Israel. And so this is his king, if you will. Doesn't like him, plots against him. And he strikes him down at that town. And he's at that town as the king, which is a good thing he's doing. He's leading the army. He is being the guy who says, you guys follow me. And he's leading in that. And so we do see that about Nadab. That's a good thing. But the Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it, verse 28, Baasha killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and soon it succeeded him as king. And as soon as he became king, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. So what happens? God fulfills what he says he's going to do. He made a promise, Jeroboam, because of your sins, you're going to pay. And he pays through his son, and all of his family is wiped out. Again, listen to that. That's just not a promise through a prophet. That is God being true to his word. And please hear that. God is always true to his word. Verse 30, this happened because of the sins of Jeroboam had committed and it caused Israel to commit and because he aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel. That's it. Nice little epitaph. I, you know, I don't know if I want to go to that funeral. You know, what do you say about Nadab? He was a great, he was a great family member. He, um, he was a great leader for two years. I mean, I'm just trying to see how you would play that out. So that leads us to the next slide, Baasha. Okay, so you get rid of Jeroboam's lying. This is what's different between the north and the south, right? <clears throat> the north has a line with David. The south has a line that's going, that's moving. And we're going to see that a lot. The line has not kept true because God gives them an option and they choose not to, to follow it. So Baasha, verse 33, third year of Asa, king of Judah. Baasha, son of Ahijah, becomes king of the Israel in Terza, and he reigns 24 years. Okay, so he lasts a little bit longer. Surely there's going to be a lot read, said about that. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sins Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. And then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, a prophet, <coughs> concerning Baasha. I lifted you up from the dust and appointed you ruler over my people Israel, but you followed the ways of Jeroboam and caused my people Israel to sin and to arouse my anger by their sins. Okay. God is the one that put Baasha in a position to take out Jeroboam's line. Okay. God is the one who ordained that because of the judgment on Nadab and Jeroboam, God takes them out by using Baasha. And Baasha has an opportunity to follow God and, and to submit to his word and live in that. But we find out that he chooses to follow the very same person that he was called to assassinate and get rid of. He says, verse 3, so I'm about to wipe out Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam. Dogs will eat those belonging to Baasha who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country. Okay, so that's a movie you'll want to see. Right? That's the kind of movie guys like to see. Ah, sounds like good. We'll see that. As for the other events of Baasha, what he did and his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Okay, 24 years. How many verses? Four or five? 
Okay, there has to be a reason they're here, by the way. It says, moreover, verse seven, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu to Baasha and his son and his house because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger by the things he did, becoming like the house of Jeroboam. So they just repeated it, and also because he destroyed it. So not only did he commit the sins, then he destroyed it as well. Now we hear Elah. Okay, Elah is the son of Baasha. He rules for two years. Verse nine, Zimri, or Zimri, one of his officials, who had commanded half his chariots. So he was kind of an army commander. Half the chariots were his. Plotted against his, him. Elah was in Tursa at the time getting drunk in the home of Arza, the, place, the palace administrator. Zimri came in, struck, down, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Asa. And then he succeeded him as king. Okay, hear the worst. Not only was he the king, but, and you were gonna find out, this town becomes popular again. Most of the army is still registering right here. They're still protecting the borders. They're making sure the Philistines don't move. They're kind of watching Israel with their other eye. They're hanging out here. We see one king hanging out here and getting killed. The other king is in Terza, hanging out, hanging out with his buddies, getting drunk. Zimri, who I don't know why he's not at the front, but maybe he had to come back and get some chariots, I don't know, get, fill them with unleaded or something, and, and going back, and he, he plots to kill. We don't know all the details there, but we, we see the worst of the king. He's still choosing to not do even what the role of the king should be. And so he is killed, again, fulfilling a promise that we just read a few verses earlier, uh, and then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, Verse 11, and seated on the throne, he killed off Baasha's whole family. Okay, common line here. Let's take them out. I don't want any more of them left. Okay, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Baasha through the prophet Jehu. And because all that sins Baasha and his son Eli had committed and caused Israel to commit, so they roused the anger of the Lord of Israel by their worthless idols. And so Eli actually gets more verses, even though he's two years, long, two years there. This is the awesome part. Verse 15. We're moving through here. Zimri in the 27th year of Asa. Zimri reigned in Terza seven days. <laughs> wow, what is, what's your goal in life? To live seven days as king and then to be killed. This is what happens to, to, to Zimri. The army was encamped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. And when the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king and murdered him, they proclaimed Onri, the commander of the army, king over Israel, that very day there in his camp. Okay, they hear about it. Killed over here in Terza. Omri's here. They said, Let, you know what? We're not, I don't know, Zimri, I can't believe he did that. We're going to have some kind of uh, loyalty to the king. And so we're going to demand that you're king. And so Zimri, in a, in a week, he gets a lot done, though. I mean, he kills the king, and then he kills all his family. So he is fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling the word of God. But he's, he's going to be taken out. Uh, uh, and so when he hears that Omri shows up, verse 17, and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibbethon and laid siege to Terza. When he saw that, the city was taken. He went in the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him and died. Okay? So he died because of the sins he had commanded, committed doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the sins Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Deja vu. See what I'm saying? It's over and over why? Why is this happening? Maybe we'll find out some answers. Verse 21. So Omri, and this is why there's the argument between the number of kings here, because Omri, verse 21, the people of Israel were split in their two factions. Half supported Timni, never heard of this guy, right? For king, and the other half supported Omri. 
But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni. <coughs> so Tibni died and Omri became king. Don't get a lot of information there. If you want, go find the annals and find out. God doesn't really care too much. He doesn't seem to make that important for us to know. And so about four, five, six years, they kind of co-kinged, okay, for a while. And then Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Terza. And then he did something really important. He bought this hill, and he built a city on it. Samaria, and that's probably more over here. But I drew it. That's my cool little city on a hill. Okay? And so he builds this. He, it tells us in verse 24, he buys the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, uh, naming it after Shemer, the, the name of the former owner of the hill. But, deja vu, Omri, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of them before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. Boom. So Omri is out of the play. And then comes a guy that we get to hear a lot about. A guy named Ahab. This is Omri's son. And so in the 38th year of Asa, Ahab, Son of Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Verse 31 might be a good verse to circle. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal or Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Okay. Don't think I want to name my kid Ahab. You know what I'm saying? Maybe your dog or, you know, a horse or something. But um, you wouldn't name your kid that. Verse 34, it can go unnoticed, but this is a powerful verse. Uh, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho during this time. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Um, turn, if you have, Joshua 6, because this is a fulfillment of a promise about what happened to Jericho. We know the story, right? Joshua Fought the battle of Jericho, walks around, last day walks around several times, the walls come tumbling down. What we may have forgotten in verse 26, at the time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed be the Lord is the one, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So we see the fulfillment in this one verse. And this is kind of amazing. Why would, he, uh, why would his son die? What was the reason? Did he fall during the building? Most people would say that it was a form of ritual sacrifice. Again, following idols and false gods. That in that essence, uh, you would actually, when you laid the foundation, offer a sacrifice to the gods. And he offered his son. And so we see this picture here. Who's responsible for that? Well, Hiel was the one who built it, but Ahab is the king, and it was on his watch. And during his watch, Ahab 
orchestrated again. Why would he build Jericho? Because he wants to cover his backside. He's protecting anybody that would come. It's right here across the river. Anybody that would come this way. And so he's fortifying cities. It's kind of like what Jim talked about last week. He says, why, would they, why was it so easy for them to go back and to take on different idols and put them in their homes to begin to worship them and to build Asherah poles? Why was it? Because everybody was doing it. It was the culture. And it was the effect that was there. And it became an easy thing to do. And it just, and you, we kind of read it and go, really? Everybody died before you? Don't you remember well? And yet they would come back and they would immediately go back and commit the same sins over and over again. There is a lot of intertwining here. I'm not going to read the whole next sections because there's a lot of Elijah I want to leave alone. I'm going to leave that whole battle with the prophets alone. Um, a little bit in 20 and 21, there's some things going on there. We see Ahab and Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is the head of the, the uh, um, Syrian army which is going to be a little bit of a picture of what's going to happen. Syria is going to be up here, okay? Um, so Damascus is up in this area, okay? Syria is here, and they're going to come and attack from that direction, and we're going to see several things taking place here uh, in chapter 20. Um, and in chapter 21, we see the situation with Naboth and what is taking place there. A lot of things are, are going on here. And so let's, let's walk through this. Um, in, in chapter 20, Ben-Hadad attacks Samaria. And so he comes down with 32 kings to attack them. And uh, it's really interesting. Uh, he demands these things. I think Jim even kind of alluded to this at the end of last week. And so we know the story. He demanded these things from Ahab, and Ahab says, okay, you can come in. He says, uh, your gold and silver are mine, the best of your wives and children are mine. And Ahab goes, okay, which is sad. And then he comes back and goes, you know what? I not only want all your demand and your silver and gold, but about this, you know, I, I also want to come down and, and, and I want to take anything that I desire. And Ahab bows up to that for some reason. Talks to his elders, says, you know what? I don't think we're going to let him do this. And so he stands strong against that. And we see this incredible picture of Ahab with a prophet coming to him, by the way, the word of God, the prophet, the word being spoken in the midst of this, these people he dearly loves, the people of the north, the Jews, the Israelites. He loves them very much. And he sends a prophet and he says, you know what, Ahab, you're going to go and you're going to defeat them. Well, how's that going to happen? Okay, here's Ahab who's doing everything against God. God in his patience and his mercy sends a prophet and says, this is going to happen. All your interns, gather them and let them lead into battle in the middle of the day. We're not going to sneak up on them. We're going to come in the middle of the day and I want you to attack Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad's pretty arrogant, pretty cocky. He, he's having a party. He's getting drunk. He hears that they're coming. We'll see if they're coming with, in peace or they're coming to fight. Sure enough, they're coming to fight and it tells us that he is defeated. And then the prophet says, now be careful, he's going to come back again this time next year. And sure enough, we, we read in the text, we see Ben-Hadad, he goes, oh, their God, small g, must be the God of the hills. So they worship the right God of the hills. I'll, we'll see what they do on the God of the plains. And so we'll try it again. It's really interesting here as he goes through this, and he walks through there, and it tells us that like 100,000 of them go down. And a lot of them try to run to a little town called Aphek. And it says that the wall falls on, I think, 27,000. Sounds like Jericho, doesn't it? 
a little bit. And so here's Ahab in the midst of the person who considered it trivial to go against God, to laugh in his face, and yet God sends a prophet for what? To somehow get them to respond differently, to give them an opportunity to repent. And so we see these two incredible mighty battles that are won by an evil king because a God sends a prophet, sends his word because of his mercy. Verse 35, by the word of the Lord, one of the company of the prophets said to his companion, uh, strike me with your weapon. And he is beginning to tell a story, kind of like Nathan the prophet with David. There's a school of prophets, which was common. So I, I think it's important to say that when we see Israel, uh, I think sometimes we can fall into the thing that this is the chosen people of God, the South, because the line of David is there. We follow it all the way to Jesus. But don't forget, these are the people of God, right? All of Israel is the people of God. God is trying to reconcile all of them. He's trying to give them an opportunity to repent. He's trying to show mercy to all of them. And right now, he would say, even though there's some good and bad in the, in the north that we're going to see, he said, typically, they are all falling away from him. And in this presence, because there was a king that wasn't following, and so God used prophets, I think sometimes we think of the only people that are living for God and trying to submit to God are just the prophets. But yet, we hear of, of schools of prophets and others. Not everyone. Just because the king was living anti-God doesn't mean that the people were all completely not following God. And so just a point there. And so we have these prophets. There's a situation. He defeats Ben-Hadad. And this is the backstory. Ben-Hadad, okay, finally says, okay, you got me. I'm gonna come and can we make a treaty? And, and the prophet had said, you know, when Ben-Hadad, when you defeat him, you need to like destroy him. And Ben-Hadad comes together and they make a plan. He goes, you know what? You got me this time around. I remember, you know, when my dad was running this place, you know, we came in and we, we got it, in, you know, we infiltrated your towns and we sold our wares and we brought our gods and now you've won. So let me send, you come up to Damascus. And you know what? You can put up your, your gods in our cities and you can sell in our communities and we'll bribe this incredible marketplace for you. And, and, and Ahab goes, oh, that's cool. Let's just do that. And so on a basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty. The king, the prophets said, I need you to strike me. And there's this incredible story. He says to the school of prophets, he said, I need you to strike me. And his friend says, I'm not going to hit you. He goes, well, because you won't do this, I mean, it's pretty harsh. You're going to walk out and a lion's going to kill you. And sure enough, that happens. Next day, hey, I need you to strike me. And the guy goes, okay, I'll hit you. Boom. Hits him, bloodies his head. He puts on a wound. He sits on the side. Ahab comes by. And then we see this incredible um, situation versus... Uh, Where's that? 38. Then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his head bound down over his eyes. And as the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, your servant went into the thick of the battle and someone came to me with a captive and said, guard this man if he is missing. It will be your life for his life or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel, Ahab says. You have pronounced it yourself. And then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to the king, said to Ahab, this is what the Lord says, you have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. And then listen to Ahab's response, okay? Sullen and angry, 
the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. And so, again, because of Ahab's sin, we see the pronouncement of judgment on his life. The judgment that comes there. This last verse, chapter 21, is an interesting story. And and I think it's important for us to see, and we're going to come back at the end and try to tie this together, but there is a scenario. I I said that there were prophets who chose not to follow uh, the idols of the day, and we we all agree with that. But there are also people, people like Naboth. Okay, and so when we hear the story of Naboth, and Ahab's going, hey, I, I really like the location of your vegetable garden. That's what we're talking about here. I really like where it's at, and I'd love to be able to utilize this. Uh, and Naboth says, I, I can't do that. He just didn't say, no, I'm not selling. Sometimes that's how we read the text. But really it is, according to Leviticus, and according to land that was given to the Levites, this is land dedicated to God, I can't give you. And so from that, we can deduce that Naboth was a follower of God, and he was doing what God, and keeping the law that he had kept for his whole life, and says, I can't do this. And what does Ahab do? He goes home, he's sad, like he won't sell it to me. And his wife, Jezebel, who we haven't talked a lot about, who's an angry elf, um, she goes, aren't you king? And they devise this incredible plan. They hatch a plan. Now think about this plan, and then think of David with what he does when he gets Bathsheba pregnant, right? What does he do? He goes, oh my goodness, we've got to solve this. And what did he do? He calls his buddy Uriah, hey, sin, or not his buddy, his buddy Joab, and says, she's Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, to come home, and I just want to give him some time off, and hopefully he will go and hang out with his wife, and they would sleep together, and maybe they would think that this is going to be his baby. And we see Uriah in his honoring the king and honoring his compadres on the, on the line that he wouldn't do this. And so we see this plan that David conspires because Uriah won't take care of it. He's still got to take care of it. And so he calls Joab, and I need you to step back and put him in the heat of battle. And when Uriah steps forward, he would die. And then I can go in and save the day and marry Bathsheba. We see that whole story. This is a very similar one. When Ahab doesn't get his way, his wife Jezebel says, this is what you need to do. Throw a party in honor of Naboth. And when you have this party, I, I want you to put some goons on either side of him. And so when he's sitting back like, oh, wow, this is for me, and this is like a surprise, <clears throat> have these guys start to accuse him of being a, an anti-worshiper of God. And it's going to cause such a stink that then you can take him out of the city and you can stone him, and then you can go take the land. And so he goes and tells not his Joab, which is his leader's, and what do his leaders do with the king? They follow his words to a T. They submit to the king that they are submitting to, and they follow him exactly, and then they carry out this process, and Naboth is gone. Think of the prophets. The prophets who hear the word of God, and what do they do? They hear it, and then they repeat it, and then they speak it, completely in obedience to their God. And so we see this difference here. And in the process of this, we see another stark judgment come upon him. This is, gets, gets, this is R-rated movie stuff here. Verse, uh, 
Verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive but dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he went up and went down, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Okay, and, and again, we just this is the first time you're hearing of Elijah today, but Elijah's all over this section. He says, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyards. Hear God speaking to him? He's given him every kind of clear fact where he has gone to take possession of it. Now he's not even down there, but he's taking possession of, of the vineyard. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. I am so grateful for an Elijah who hears the word of God and goes, oh, wow, how do I soften this? Hmm, what are the repercussions for me? If I, if I don't speak like the word of God clearly right now. And, and you'll get to, t we'll talk about Elijah next week, but I mean, we get to see Elijah grow in that. And I think about how that relates to us. You know the word of God. And you know it in your home situation, in your job situation, in your family extension, even with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and you know what the word of God says. And you're going, wow, should I speak that direct? How, how do I process this? I am so glad that Elijah didn't go, well, you know, you, you, you better repent, man. God is not happy. I'm giving you a warning. No, he tells him exactly. Uh, and then Ahab comes before him and says, so you have found my, me, my enemy. Ahab, there's this, always this issue going out. And he says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He's not pulling any punches. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, deja vu, and that of Baasha, deja vu, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also, concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, <clears throat> and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. And there was never anyone like Ahab, here is the commentary, who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel's wife. He be behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. And then when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. A little bit different than what happened with Ben-Hadad, right? He went away sad because I don't get to play with my friends anymore, right? Here he, he, he gets sackcloth. He, he, there seems to be some repentance here. And the word of God, by the way, this angry God of the Old Testament, by the way, not so much here. The word came to Elijah, verse 29. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled himself I will not bring disaster in his day, but I will bring it on the house in the days of his son. Well, that's not much of a break. Actually, it is, right? That God, when he says something, he follows through. His word can be trusted, right? His word can be trusted. So when he says something, he follows through. 
And, and when there is repentance, judgment doesn't cease. It, it can be delayed, and we see it delayed here. And, and I think it's important for us to not miss these sections of text where God gets a bad rap, in my opinion, for being this angry, <coughs> just choleric, I'm in charge, my way or the highway God, and yet we learn as we read through the Old Testament text and we see the fulfillment in the New Testament text, we see this God who, because of his incredible love for us, puts rules and judgment in our place so that he can challenge us. And he gives us a covenant and he walks in it with us and he provides that if you do this, this will happen. But if you don't, this is what happens. You see, we go back to Samuel and then 1 Kings, Solomon with the temple and the dedication, right? Solomon choosing wisdom. If you do this, here's the covenant, here's the covenant, here's the covenant. <clears throat> if you don't, this is what it looks like. And this is what we see. A couple of thoughts that I thought were astonishing as I was reading the commentators this week. There's a great book on the kings and how it connects to the gospel. It's a phenomenal book. But uh, I, I put on your, on your sheet there, Genesis 1 through 6, Put it over here. And I want us to see these correlations. And, and, and it's really interesting because we see some very amazing correlations between these three stories. First of all, Ahab. We see these decisions that Ahab makes. Ahab sins in his policy towards the Gentiles, okay? And so we see that that's one of his egregious sins is, is how he treats uh, Ben-Hadad, right? God says, I need you to do this. I need you to get rid of them. And what does he do? He goes, well, he fights them. God defeats them. All he has to do is take out Ben-Hadad who's walking towards him, right? He can, he can ex execute the justice and the judgment that God has established that could have transformed the way Ahab, it could have changed everything, but he, he chooses to treat the Gentiles in this section, he chooses to treat them and gives them a break, even though God called for a judgment. Uh, we see Ahab and how he treats his, his subjects, like Naboth, right? This is a guy in his kingdom. He goes, and, and when Naboth doesn't want to sell, he sulks, and then he devises a plan, and he takes out Naboth, in that situation. And so that's his second major sin along with the sins of Jeroboam. And then finally, in his response, we didn't read it last week, Jim talked about chapter 22, his response to the word of the prophet Micaiah, you know, in, in what was going on there. Uh, well, turn to that real fast. First uh, Samuel, or First Kings 22. You know, it's that whole situation. He is married into Jehoshaphat, who is the king from the south, and all of this, and they come together and they work and they're asking for a prophet. And Ahab's going, I don't, do you have, you know, Jehoshaphat's asking, do you have like a, uh, like a prophet of God? And he doesn't, I don't, they don't ever give me any good news. And so that's that whole story in here. Um, and, and ultimately, what happens because of his response to the prophet? God takes his life, and we see this uncanny way of him dying by trying to switch his identity and getting shot in just the correct place. So we see this picture of Ahab, and we see this, these lists of sins. Now let's think, of, let's think of Saul. Saul had some very similar things, almost in reverse order. His failure to wait for Samuel, right, and sacrifice without him. 
You know, and so kind of like Micaiah, you didn't completely follow what the prophet said, and so you're having judgment. Same thing with Saul. Wait for Samuel, offer the sacrifice, and then we'll move forward. But what did Saul do? He's supposed to be here. He didn't come. Let's just get this going. I do it. He literally offers the sacrifice in haste. Samuel shows up. We know judgment from that point on. We know Samuel very quickly goes and anoints David to be king, even though it won't happen for years, right? And so we see that, that, that sin of Saul. We also see that during, I don't know if you remember the story of, I don't think we talked about it in here, but there's the story of, of Saul going to battle, and he throws out this incredibly harsh um, response to his, to his soldiers. He says, hey, guys, I want us to fast. Okay, wait, we're in battle. We need to be eating. You know, we shouldn't be fasting here. Jonathan doesn't hear about it. Remember this? Jonathan comes up on his beehive. He comes in. Hey, guys, <laughs> want some honey? And they're like, do you know what your dad said? And his dad had made this incredible, if anybody does this, they're going to die. And so what does Saul try to do? He tries to kill his own son for his own identity. And so we see the same thing. Very similar to Naboth. He, he goes in and he's like, he's willing to take his own son, his own brother, his own compadre, and execute him. Of course, that doesn't happen. And then he does the same thing with Agag, the Amalekite. You know, when the Lord told him to destroy him, what did he do? He said, hey, let's make a treaty here. We see these similar lines, one from all of Israel, and now we see it reproduced again in the north in Israel. And then we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we see Adam's sin at the tree in the garden, Right? And then he is cast out. We see Cain's sin against his brother Abel and taking his life. And he becomes cast out of the land. And then finally we see the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Right? And God sends a flood and destroys the whole earth. I just think there's this incredible picture here. This picture of Worship and work and then the world. And I think of the Israel, the northern countries and the responsibilities. God in his covenant, in his promise, he says, I want you to take care of these zones in your lives. You know, be faithful in these areas in, in, in worship and who you worship and what you do at the workplace. And, and what do you do with the world? And, and I see, you know, that worship area, you know, where it was in the garden where they worshiped with God, right? And when we see it in, in Israel where they had the opportunity to worship Yahweh God and relent and submit to him, and yet they chose other idols. We see it in the workplace where it's with your siblings, with your brothers, we, whether it was Adam killing his, or not Adam, but uh, Cain killing Abel, or where we see, you know, Saul willing to take his own son's life, or even Ahab, one of the constituents in his kingdom, he was going to kill him over a piece of land. And I look at the workplace, and God has given us a zone. What are we doing in there where we deal with the siblings in our body, the body of Christ? And, and then in the world, the place of mission and witness where we deal with unbelievers, <clears throat> do we speak the truth? And do we speak clearly the judgment for the sake of repentance in one's life? I think there's an opportunity to preserve sound worship uh, that's rooted out of idolatry and maintaining the temple of Yahweh and protecting and not oppressing our brothers and bear faithful witness in the world and fight Yahweh's battle against the enemy because there is an enemy. And, and both Saul 
and Ahab failed. And then finally, in the culture shock there, the impact of, of idolatry. And, and I want us to maybe think as we try to implement this in, in where we live in Stillwater, Oklahoma today, the impact of idolatry in our world today. You know, what, is, what, is, what are the steps that lead uh, from idolatry and even today? I think idolatry quickly yields to dryness and death in our life. I think it leads to a spiritual exhaustion. Um, we're tired of fighting idolatry, and so we just let it happen. It seems like that's what happens in Israel. It's easy for me to go and, like, okay, like, everybody died. You just killed them because God used you to, to fulfill the prophet, and then you turn right around, like, in, like, seven days, you're still doing the same things? And we see this over and over, and it's almost like we're exhausted, and I think this is what we need to fight in the church, especially as believers. Are we spiritually exhausted against idolatry in our world today? Have we become a culture of, and here's some words, whatever, anything goes, and who cares anyway? You know, there's so many different idols like success, money, pleasure, self-indulgence, sex, all of these things. And we become, as we follow down the stairs, we become one of the seven deadly sins. We become men and women of sloth. We become slothful. I, I love this quote. Let me, let me read it to you. It says, it is the sin which believes in nothing, sloth, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing it would die for. I thought that was a pretty good illustration. And I thought, wow, does that sound like us, America? You know, we're, we're really, we're, we're really like the weekends, really? That's what we live for? We, we live for things that it seems like um, there is no wisdom, and it's almost like the wisdom we have is actually counterintuitive, right? And, and, and so maybe the wisdom that we have is more of the, the ecclesiastical whimsicalness of that, like everything is meaningless, and that leads us to a slothful, slothful life. Sloth is a lack of faith in God's providence and care and a lack of hope that God will keep his promises. And that's why I made so much of a, a, a point about the prophet and what they spoke. They spoke the word of God. And they didn't, they didn't mess with it. They spoke it directly. They let it lay there. And this is what you need to do. And you have a choice to that. And, and we need to have not a slothfulness, but a, an energy and a desire to speak the word of God carefully and clearly so we can point to God's faithfulness and his providence that we can point to a hope that is there for us. Uh, it's interesting that tolerance is also tied to words like tolerance and disillusionment. And I can't think of better words to describe the world in which we live today. Ahab forgets that every word from God is an act of grace an invitation to conversion. Let me say it again. Ahab forgets that every word from God is an act of grace and an invitation to conversion. Let me, let me finish with Romans and we'll be done. Romans chapter one. A lot of you know it. This is a powerful text. Let me just read this. Verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed for heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal gods for images made to look like a mortal man being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual morality for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. The word of God is still alive. And the word of God is still being spoken. You see, we see the trail of high priests and kings and prophets. And now we have the word. And the one who became the word of God said, hey, wait, there's a Holy Spirit coming. It's going to be greater. And now we have the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak to us through the word. And then Paul writes this, pins this to the Romans, which is for the church in Stillwater, and says, this is our history. Here is your opportunity. What will you do with the word of God? Have a great night.